Video games were never a stabilizing factor in my family. My mom was kind of convinced that they would turn my brother and I into violent sociopaths, and while my dad was more sympathetic, he viewed them as a point of academic stress, a pretty apt assessment, though I was reluctant to admit so at the time. My brother and I both played, but we would often find ourselves fighting over who got to play what console and who got the nicer controller. But board and card games were a different story entirely, and a particular card game, Cribbage, was a point of unity for all of us. Still is, actually. Counting has its own particular vocabulary, with lots of suffixes and ending jokes. Every hand is met with open adulation or snorts of derision, and every game, no matter who is playing when or where, is considered the championship of the free world. And no matter our circumstances at the time, whether there were an argument or disagreement or anything of the sort, we would almost always be able to sit down and play, without it causing further drama. Games in general can have a lot of different effects. They can be a point of unity, like Cribbage was for my family, or they can insulate one member of the family from the rest. And today we've got some stories on that theme. From SiliconSasquatch.com, this is Memory Card. I'm Spencer Kordoff. On this episode, Family. We've got three chapters for you. In her first chapter, Nicole Young talks about spending some of her time growing up in Hong Kong and the game that helped her escape the rather rough circumstances there. In chapter two, Alvaro Soria talks about determining which is more important, natural disasters or video games. And in Chapter 3, Rebecca Jennings reflects on teen angst, and the one game that brought her and her brother together. That's all coming up. Please stick around. Chapter 1. Tenants Complain of Noise I've known Nicole Young for a number of years now, eight, actually, and in the span of time that we've known each other, she's alluded several times to spending part of her childhood in Hong Kong, but she's never really discussed it in any detail. When I was looking for stories for the show, however, she suggested talking about that span of time in her life, and was gracious enough to be interviewed for our program. For my seventh or eighth birthday, for some reason I wanted a computer for my birthday, and my cousin built me this very basic tiny computer on his own and I started playing whatever he had installed on there so it was a lot of like Minesweeper and that catapult game you know where you aim catapults at each other and try and kill the other opponent just kind of arcing them over the map yeah but I don't think I really started getting into video games like at a very serious level until I moved to Hong Kong um, I'd been born and raised in Vancouver up until then, and my mom and my dad were were interested in living in Hong Kong again. So we went back, you know, me and my sister, and it was a total culture shock. I was there when I was about nine until I was 13 or 14, and I moved back to Vancouver. I definitely felt like a fish out of water when I was there. 
The big part was that I didn't speak the language well. I mean, I could, but not well enough to be more immersed in the culture. Hong Kong was still at the time under British rule. So I could get around quite a bit as long as I stuck to areas that spoke a lot of English. So that was mostly the business districts or the main business hubs on the island. So I spent a lot of time there, just wandering around the city a lot. Socially, it was not liberal enough for me. Like I'd grown up in a very, what I felt to be a very freeing city. People were terse or they were rude. They, they weren't friendly, they weren't polite. The people there are very internal. I just felt like I didn't have any room to breathe because it's so crowded over there. It's, it's a very small city, geographically, and they hadn't done a lot of expansion at the time into the outlying areas like they have now. So a lot of people were still like on top of each other and there were always people on the street at, at all hours of the night and I just felt like I was you know suffocating in my in my apartment all the time I was used to living in a big house with a backyard and a front yard and you know you walk out onto your sidewalk and there are rows of houses with big yards and then you come to this huge urban city with like buildings on top of buildings on top of buildings and it was a total shock to the system. Once we were in Hong Kong, like my dad and my mom had been having a lot of marital problems for a while, but it, it just exploded once we were over there. And they, they basically started separating on again, off again for years. Around that time was when my mom started drinking really hard, and that was something that we just didn't talk about in the in the house. That's when things started to really go downhill for the way I viewed I viewed my parents and the way I viewed their relationship and the way I was treated. My mom, I guess, was not. I don't think she was proud of it. I think I think she was very ashamed of what was going on, and so she would tell me, you know, oh, you can't tell anyone, like, you have to pretend that everything's okay, you know, when you talk to people, so we would keep up the pretense of everything being okay with our family, and I thought that was very normal. I didn't realize for years that that was not a normal thing to do, you know, I was, I was conditioned to believe that lying to my aunts and cousins was okay, like, lying to my classmates at home was okay, and I didn't know that what was happening was very wrong. My mom, she either would come in in the middle of the night and she'd be very emotional and she would be crying or my dad would bring us home after an afternoon out on the weekend and she would already be drinking and she would be trying to start a fight with him or she would pick on us and say that she didn't want us, she wished she had never had us, she wished that we were dead. She did beat us up a couple of times, but I don't know what I would have preferred if there had been equal amounts of 
emotional and physical abuse. Like, I, I think I would have preferred her to just beat the crap out of us because I still live with what she says every day. And it's hard to imagine being alive and know that you're kind of a living regret of your, of your, you know, the person that brought you into this world. It was pretty terrible. When my dad was living away from us, like he knew what was going on, but I don't think he really knew how to address it or how to deal with it because my mom was so insistent that me and my sister live with her because she thought that that was the best thing for us. With that happening and with the fact that, you know, I was in a different country, I didn't speak the language very well, I felt very, very isolated from a lot of the familiar things that I had grown up with. And I was attending a British private school at the time. It was incredibly competitive and I just wasn't doing well socially or emotionally there. It was just a chaotic time with everything that was going on. So I don't really remember how it started, but I know at, at one point, like on weekends, my dad and my sister and I were going out because those were the times when he would see us and we'd go shopping and he'd buy us the things that he thought we needed. And at the time I had this tiny Macintosh Performa, you know, those desktop bricks, kind of like the, the precursor to the iMac. That thing was so hard to buy games for and I was getting pretty pissed because, you know, Hong Kong, like, you can't really find anything imported. It's really hard to to get, at least at the time, from, like, America. We shopped around quite a bit looking to load up this computer, and finally we came across this copy of some tower. And I don't know if it was pirated or it was, like, snuck in to the country because it wasn't packaged the way it should have been. It didn't have a seal on it like it usually would. or It was just this very, like, innocuous... CD and a plastic wrapper with instructions. I mean, it was so, I don't want to say ghetto, but it was, it was definitely like a little bit sketchy. <laughs> it was great. So my dad's like, okay, let's buy it. And I was like, you really want to buy this thing? Like this could, I don't know. This is very sketchy, dad. He was like, no, 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 let's just get it. Whatever. It's only like $5 or how much it was. So we bought it, I take it home, and I think I played that game for like the next four years. I, I played it obsessively. You know, I was always locked in my room because my mom was so uncontrollable at that point. I just didn't know how to cope with it, so I just hid in my room the whole time. and. I would just play this some tower, build more floors, and it's got a very complicated system, I guess. I don't know if it's complicated, but at the time I thought it was super complicated, and so I was obsessed with trying to build the best tower I could. So I was already developing like, this strategic mentality of how to play it. I think I, I just loved the whole idea of being creative in a way that I hadn't felt before and knowing that I at least could excel at 
building a tower, I guess. What I really loved is thinking about the different ways that I could manipulate the floors and how much money and how much stuff I could I could get out of it each day. In some tower, you you know you have like three days in the week, and then you you get rent, you get money, you can build more, and it's just kind of like a repeating cycle, and that just really appealed to me. I don't think I realized it at the time, but I, now that I look back on it, I definitely feel like I I spent so much time with that game because it was the only thing I really had control over. I didn't have control over the things that were happening at school. I didn't have control over family life and what was being said to me and what was going on at home. And I think when I was playing that game, like I, I felt like I had my hand in something that I could manipulate. And I'm sure that there was a huge part of, of playing that game that was an escape mechanism for me because I'd sit in my room for hours in the dark and play it until two or three in the morning, you know, on a school night. And I was like, oh, it's fine, like whatever. I mean, obviously it wasn't healthy for like a 11 or 12 year old girl to be playing video games up that late, but I was still pulling in good enough grades that my mom wasn't like totally pissed off at me about it. I, I think it was like the only kind of happy thing that I had at the time. I couldn't bring friends home. I spent a lot of time alone and I felt like I connected with it in some level. SimTower definitely inspired my love for simulation games and I, I think in, with video games in general. I think it was this outlet of just something I could I could dedicate my time to and feel like I was accomplishing something even though you know it's a, it's a video game like you're not really accomplishing anything meaningful but except in this this little virtual universe that you've created but but I thought I thought that game was was simply the best at the time I really loved it I still love it When I was about 13 or 14, I actually put my foot down to my parents and I said, look, I don't want to be in Hong Kong anymore. I really want to go back to school in Vancouver. And I don't think any of us wanted to acknowledge the fact that I was unhappy because of, of what was going on at home and the fact that I wasn't adjusting well to what was going on in Hong Kong. But I think they kind of realized that I had done my five years and it, it just wasn't working out. So they agreed to let me live with my aunt and my cousins in Vancouver without them. I went to school at the local high school and yeah, spent like the next four years just trying to figure out what was normal and not really doing a very good job of it. I think at that time I was still very conditioned to to pretend that everything was okay and and to pretend that I had to put a good face on and it was it was definitely a very long transition when I moved back you know not to mention the fact that I was away from my parents I was away from my sister 
I was living with my aunt and my cousins, who I had lived with before, but I think it was really hard for everyone because I was living with them and, and they had to treat me like one of their own, but it was made very clear to me that it was not my home. It was just a place I was staying at. So in that sense, living with my, my cousins, I, I didn't feel like I was at, at home. I don't know how long it was after I started playing WoW that my mom and my sister moved back permanently to Vancouver. I think I was about 20 or 21 when that happened. So it was around the same time that I started really getting into the game again. And I think really having my mom there, I don't know if it was a regression, but I definitely felt a lot of the old feelings like come back. I guess I felt like the only way I could really deal with it was to isolate myself again the way I did back in Hong Kong, just kind of to do the same thing like when she moved back to Vancouver. There was definitely a lot of the same behaviors because the same shit was happening. But I think it was worse at that point, not because at that point I wasn't getting beaten up. I wasn't getting like hurt or anything. And my mom wasn't really drinking as much as she was back then but I think what made it worse was that she was drinking like in front of family members and she was taking a lot of opportunities to excuse her behavior you know not on my father anymore but on us like me and my sister and just the fact that we were not the children she really wanted us to be like we weren't exhibiting the behaviors she wanted us to to have or the ambitions that she wanted us to to lead and she felt like that was an excuse for her to drink and my family was like well she's kind of right like you give her a reason to drink and you're just gonna have to take her home and put her to bed and you're just gonna have to try to be a good girl you don't pin the blame on your kids man i mean really it's crazy i don't think i felt like i had a home until i moved to philadelphia I know I tell you about Philly and how much I hate it. In some ways, I, I do. I am very grateful for the fact that I came here because I feel free, you know, and that's something I, I think I've always been working towards my whole life, feeling like I have the freedom to do what I want. And I've never felt that until I moved here. And it's great. I love it. Nicole Leung lives in Philadelphia. How she got there is a story for a different time. Chapter 2. bob Omb's Battlefield While I was looking for stories for this program, I got the chance to sit down with Alvaro Saria through a 11-hour time difference and talk about some of his experiences with gaming. Among other anecdotes, which we hope to use on the program in the future, he told me this one about getting an N64 as a kid growing up in Colombia. My parents got me the N64 with mm -hmm. Super Mario 64. I was really, really into it. The next day I had to go to school. So I woke up like two hours early, got myself dressed, showered, ate something and went straight in my school uniform to play until the bus came. My mom left for work, my dad was still sleeping and I had to play in my parents' bedroom because at that time the only TV that had a the proper plug to play was my parents' one. The one on the living room was too old. 
I could only play my my Super NES in there. So I started playing. Mm-hmm. I was really into it, playing on Bobom Field, I think the name of the level was. Anyway, I was in Colombia at that time, and it started an earthquake. I mean, Colombia, it's a place where sometimes you have earthquakes and that kind of thing. It wasn't a very strong one, but well, you could really feel it. And I was so absorbed in the game that I just was like, oh shit, it's shaking. Pause. That, that it's, it's, I think it's shaking. He woke up really scared, sat on the bed, and was the okay, he's up. Unpause. He kept on playing. <laughs> <laughs> Through the earthquake. Yes. <laughs> yes, it wasn't a really strong earthquake. I mean, it was just like a shake, really. Yeah, yeah. But it lasted several seconds, and I was like, well, okay, this happens sometimes. No biggie. <laughs> and I kept on playing. No problem. I'm just going to... I'm just gonna pick up Super Mario again. I, I guess if it's really severe, the power will go out or something. Yeah, I didn't really think about anything else. Alvaro lives in Colombia, but he's contemplating a move to the United States. Chapter three, Double O Siblings. Rebecca Jennings, a poet and bookseller living in Seattle, has this story about teen and sibling angst growing up with her brother, and a game that helped them survive the process. I'm not the kind of person you'd usually find contributing to a show about video games because they're not very important to my life. But they are central in a story that is important to me, the story of me and my brother Adam. I played games a lot as a kid, aided by a computer hobbyist dad and an older brother. I cut my video gaming teeth on dad's Commodore 64, and before too long, Adam and I were running serial cables across the hallway to network computers and play Warcraft 2 or Descent. Pokemon Red kept me company on long car trips, and we saved allowance money to buy games for our Sega Genesis or N64. As I passed into middle school and later high school, video games took a backseat to other pursuits. My time was taken up with books, sports, theater, and giggling over cute boys with my friends. Social groups became more gender segregated then, and many of my female friends had little to no exposure to video games. It didn't seem like a big loss, Video games weren't going anywhere, and I could come back to them whenever I wanted. But that same time held another change that was more painful. A shift in my relationship with Adam. Adam is a mere 14 months older than I am, a single year in school. As young children, we were exceptionally close, almost like twins. We had the same friends, went to the same daycare, and shared a room. We were inseparable. He felt like an extension of me. My best friend, my brother, my partner in crime, my other half. Together, we slipped through the back fence to play with our neighbor, Clifford. We planned tree forts and side-of-the-house forts and between-the-fences forts. We valiantly explored the laurel bushes lining the yard or biked the neighborhood, dutifully staying within a two-block radius of the house, usually. We built Lego masterpieces and filmed many stop-motion movies with the pieces. We found a broken-up remote-control car and spent hours hooking the loose wires up to batteries to make it go forward, backward, and in circles. Our friendship began to shift as we entered elementary school. Not surprisingly, some of his friends thought it uncool to have a kid sister tagging around. For a while, that simply meant that when his friends were over, I needed to be otherwise occupied. Once they were gone, our siblinghood was as strong as ever. By the time we were in middle school, though, things were deteriorating pretty rapidly. We had entirely separate social circles. Whereas before, we played on the same t-ball team, 
Now we were divvying up our extracurriculars in an unspoken agreement that we should not be in the same place at the same time any more than necessary. Adam got choir. I got theater. Adam ran track. I played soccer. Adam's friends had piercings and unnatural hair colors. Mine toted copies of Lord of the Rings and went to youth group on Wednesdays. When Adam and I were at home, away from the monitors of his coolness, in the one place where sibling rivalry could possibly be set aside in favor of camaraderie and friendship, we hardly spoke except to fight. We fought about nearly everything. Chores and who got control of the TV were favorites. What movie to watch was another common one. We had irreconcilable differences on our opinions of Burger King versus McDonald's and which pizza delivery companies were acceptable. This isn't an uncommon story. Siblings fight in middle school, that's hard on everyone. But I did not take it gracefully. I was angry. I yelled at my parents and at him. On one occasion, I lunged at him, fists flying in anger. Adam, who by 12 had grown to nearly six feet, put his hand on my head and held my child-sized fists safely out of range. It was a funny picture for everyone who was not full of 11-year-old anguish. I cried regularly. I prayed more fervently for the return of my brother than I have prayed for anything before or since. I attempted to spend time with Adam even when it was painfully apparent that he did not want me around. He was the person I cared for most in the world and he spurned me at every opportunity. It was one long, unrequited sibling love affair. And having experienced unrequited romantic love, I can confidently say that this was worse. From the hindsight of adulthood, the drama of the time seems much less dramatic. At the time, though, it was devastating. I'm going to skip ahead here to June of 2011, when I graduated college. The moment when this story of animosity, confusion, and frustration in my relationship with Adam ended. He drove up from Oregon with my parents to see me graduate, the first time he had seen me in Seattle, by then my home of four years. Night of graduation, after plans with friends fell through, my brother and I each took a six-pack of beer and a pack of cigarettes to a park near my apartment. We sat on a play structure in the misty June rain and talked about the pain of our childhoods, the ways our parents did us right and wrong, the way we affected each other and hurt each other. We talked about what had gone wrong between us for so many years, how hard it was for both of us to feel so estranged. Then I told him about the boy I liked. He told me about the girl he had just started dating. We talked about the future and where we were going from there. We sat as equals, drinking and smoking together, really connecting for the first time in more than a decade. That was the start of the relationship I have with him now. That was when I stopped blaming him for all that pain. When he started being my brother again. Not my best friend or other half or partner in crime. Not anymore. He was once those things, and now he's my friend. I won't ever have the friendship I had with him when we were children, and that's okay. But back now to the depths of my despair. In middle school, I wanted nothing more than to have Adam back as my best friend. He seemed to want nothing more than for me to disappear. From that point in time, even the friendship I have with him now seemed utterly impossible. I've said already that we rarely spoke except to fight, but there were some exceptions to this rule. A few stand out in my memory. Once, he showed me how to drum a simple rhythm so I could help him practice a song on his guitar. Twice, we were in the same math class, and Adam would occasionally ask me for help on the homework. But the most common, and to me the most important, were the times he would come into my room and say, Sister, come let me beat you at 007. 
I would hop to attention and follow him to the N64 and we would play GoldenEye 007. Let's be clear here, I hate GoldenEye. Hate. First person shooters are easily my least favorite type of video game. I've yet to find one that I even remotely enjoy. And this was a particularly heinous one to me. I had, and still have, little tolerance for James Bond and his ilk. It is sexist and unnecessarily violent. It was the violence in particular that bothered me then. I was raised on Humphrey Bogart movies, which contain fairly mild violence by today's standards, but even those never set well with me. James Bond was even worse. It's no surprise then that I was comically bad at the game. My obvious frustration at my skill level probably added to the humor. I've never managed to get the hang of the controls in first-person shooters, so Adam would find me wandering the map, walking left and looking right, an easy target. The rare occasions when I managed to be pointing in the right direction to shoot him, I almost always missed. A problem made worse by the fact that I insisted on playing as Oddjob, who needed to aim slightly up from his short stature to get a hit. My inevitable and untimely death would result in a stream of baby curses. Fudge monkeys! Shiitake mushrooms! You jerk! This game sucks! Maybe he chose that game because I was so bad at it. Or because he knew that I hated it. Whatever the reason, it was the only game he ever extended as a peace offering. Honestly, I didn't much care what we did. He could have suggested that we clean horse manure, and I would have run to grab a shovel. But he chose a video game. A game that, for a brief moment, allowed us to forget that we were supposed to be at each other's throats. We occupied a sacred space then. We could jive at each other and it didn't sting. We could fight without hurting one another. We could laugh. We could play like the kids that we were. I don't quite know how to describe what it meant to me then. While I still don't like the genre or the game, GoldenEye was an answer to every prayer of my young life. Much needed respite from confusion and frustration. It was magic. Looking back on it, I don't think Adam actually needed my help with his math homework. I think that he could practice his guitar just as well without my fumbling drumming, probably even better. If he just wanted to play Goldeneye, he could have played it by himself or with friends, and he often did. But I think he was reaching for a connection with me, just as I was struggling to connect with him. It was a connection neither of us knew how to create. We wouldn't figure it out for many years until we had left home and high school far behind us. We still had plenty of animosity and confusion ahead, but we made it through. Video games are not very important in my life anymore, but my brother is. Goldeneye helped bring us through a trying childhood, giving us moments of relief, however brief or sporadic, sitting side by side with controllers in our hands. Memory Card is a production of SiliconSasquatch.com and is produced by Spencer Tordoff. That's me. The rest of our editorial staff is Nick Cummings, Aaron Thayer, Tyler Martin, and Doug Bonham. Special thanks to Becky, Alvaro, and Nikki for participating in this episode. If you like this show even a little bit, please tell your friends. We're always on the lookout for new stories and new listeners. If you have a story, spencer at siliconsasquatch.com is the address. So send me a message there, and we'll look at getting you on the show in the future. Thanks for listening.